Yeah, I'm at the kitchen counter with the uh, with the studio gear again. You know, it's been close to a month, like over three weeks. It's been exactly three weeks and three days and 72 hours. I guess 72 hours. You start measuring that in days once you get to 72, once you get to 24. But anyway, uh, you know, it's it's been like close to a month since I'd checked my social media or accounts. And it, I was just so busy for a couple weeks. And then it just, you know, I just, I feel like right now it just, you know, I, my attitude hasn't, it's still a tool. Social media is a tool. It's as effective as any other tool if you use it in the right way. And, and not for any like important purpose, but just for kind of interacting with people, expressing yourself. You know, my basic view of that hasn't changed, but I checked it today just because people had sent me messages. Like if you, if you want to feel popular, don't check your social media accounts for four weeks. I mean, I had like four messages from like four people. So it's like a person a week. But it'll make you feel pretty popular because it's like, oh, people people message me. But uh, I mean, like getting back on it just for a second, though, I was just like, eh, I'm not ready. You know, the psychic space is just so dirty right now. And I think that's what it all comes down to. It's not even exclusive to social media. It's the same reason why I don't want to hang out with anybody. It's the same reason why I want to talk to very few people. Not because I have a mean, misanthropic attitude. I actually don't right now. I am enjoying talking shit, but I, I'm, I don't feel particularly mad or angry or anything about people. Uh, but I feel like it's all for the same reasons. For the same reason I don't really want to talk to anybody. I'm avoiding the social meteor as well. Um... Because, yeah, people are just weird right now, man. I'm just, I'm really seeing it, and I'm just like, man, people, they've they've gotten so weird. Not hopelessly weird, but it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while before I'm ready to see what form this mutation takes on. Because, I mean, that's how it feels. It feels like I'm watching a lot of people. I feel this way myself in some ways, that it's like everyone's caught in mid-mutation, it's like someone paused the video right in the middle of somebody mutating or transforming. And it's, you know, whether they're going to transform into something else or just continue mutating is anybody's guess. But, uh, yeah, definitely, it just there's a weirdness. And I would say it seems like you're all caught in mid-mutation. But I had a message from a friend offering me a place to live on the east coast which i thought was funny really nice but i'm not looking for a place to live so it was just a general offer with just the state of the world in mind which is actually very thoughtful you know when you think about that like just hey look at the state of the world if 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 the situation ever gets worse this is an option available i thought that was very nice but what was especially funny about it and it's not the first time that's happened in the last number of months. I don't know what kind of energy I'm giving off, but another guy uh, contacted me a while back and said, uh, "Like, if you ever need a place to crash, you can." I got a couch and a tent in my backyard, and that's what he actually said. I've stayed at that guy's place before, uh, I've, many times when I've been out in California. So. Uh, you know, he does have a bunch of couches and he does, he actually does have a tent in his backyard and another friend of mine slept back there last time we were there. 
So he's not lying. But I'm like, what is it that people are offering me places to live, to stay? Uh, but the, the message I got recently, it said, I don't know if you're with the CIA or if you're the real dude you, you, you seem to be. And I mean, that's a brag. Like, it's me bragging right there. Uh, I'm mentioning that because, yeah, I'm proud of that. And I mean, of course, he's joking. I mean, and this is a guy, too, who, uh, you know, I describe him as a pretty liberal guy, you know, politically or otherwise, like just uh, in, in general. He's a fairly liberal personality. And so it's not like some political thing. It's not some, it's it's not a matter of, oh, if if you become politically persecuted, which is not even on my mind. Like, I don't think of myself in that way, you know, because a lot of people are bug catchers. Like when I say things that are, not in line with the the current cultural power. I'm not saying it to invite any heat. I'm not saying it to entertain. I mean, may, hopefully, it, hopefully it is entertaining. I hope that talking about that stuff, giving my perspective on that stuff, is interesting or entertaining in some way. But I'm not doing it to inflame anything. I'm not doing it to bring any heat on myself. I'm not doing it just to protest, just to rebel. You know, that's, it's just my genuine feeling and it's something I, I've thought about, but, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not looking to invite any trouble in my life. I'm, I just simply believe in what I believe in, but it was funny. This guy, you know, he's like, I don't know if you're with the CIA. Like I, that's a compliment to me, you know, and it, it, it kind of, I don't know. I feel like it, uh. Or he said, or the real dude you seem to be. Like, I, I wonder about that, <laughs> too. I don't need this. I, this, is, this is too much for my ego to handle. You know? Even even if it's a... I mean, obviously, it was a, a joking comment. But still, it's too much for my ego to handle. Uh, I mean, the CIA is evil, though. You know, the reality is the CIA is fundamentally evil. Like, all that stuff that came out about what they were doing in Afghanistan like giving Viagra to elders, to the, to the elder clan leaders that we were propping up against the Taliban, but we were giving them Viagra, and it turns out that they have this ancient pedophile cult. And this is a fact. This isn't some conspiracy theory. The tribes that we put into power in Afghanistan have this ancient pedophilia practice and, you know, we always look back at the Romans or the Greeks or whoever these, these people were who had their own boy. They were basically Nambla back then. Is it the Roman soldiers? I always forget if it's the Greeks or the Romans or both. But, you know, basically like being a soldier back then, you were basically in Nambla. And so you would date little boys, hang out with little boys, hang out. We would just hang out with little boys. But, uh, you know... You look at like what was going on in, or what is going on in Afghanistan with the, the people that we put into power against the Taliban, and it's like that's the modern-day equivalent. That's what it's like. Like People forget about that. People forget to, like, to look at current examples of the things they read about. Like if you want to understand at least closer to what it's like to live in a society where the men where it's just accepted for the men to have little boys basically as their mistresses. You know, and you hear about that in these ancient societies. Just look at Afghanistan. Look at, look at the last 20 years. 
The people we put into power were doing exactly that. And the CIA knew it. The military knew it. This is not conspiracy theory. This is it's come out again and again. But for whatever reason, it gets downplayed. Like people are, I'm seeing all this talk that's like, uh, oh, uh, what's going to happen to all the women now that the Taliban are in charge? And that's a good question. I'm not dismissing that question, but I've seen almost no talk about the fact that the people we had in power, I'm talking about warlords, police chiefs or whatever they have there, whatever the equivalent is, like law enforcement officials, uh, military commanders, all these people that we put into powerful positions because they were helping us fight the Taliban, we were enabling their ancient pedophilia cult. And I'm dead serious. This was was going on. And, and the Taliban actually was fighting that, believe it or not. Um, they might not care much about women i mean I guess, well actually they do i mean that's the thing about the taliban is they care they care more about women like they're they're consumed with thoughts about women more than anybody you know it comes out differently but they're obsessed with women uh, but they don't like pedophilia and so they were actually opposed to those guys that we put into power in part you know for many reasons of course but in part because they wanted to outlaw these dancing boy pedophile cults, which are not underground. They do it openly. It's, it's bizarre. <laughs> anyway, here we, we made our Afghanistan comment. The show, is, the show is commented on Afghanistan, but talking about the CIA made me think of it. Because uh, yeah, the funny thing about him saying that, him joking, my friend joking, like, I don't know if you're with the CIA... That like a light bulb went off in my brain when he said that because I'm like, yeah, people always treat me that way. People always treat me like I have some secret, not necessarily a deep, dark secret, but like I have a big secret. Like I'm looking back at all these people I've known over the years and little things they've said, just their general wariness or something, even when it's completely undeserved. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they all treat me. Like I have some big secret that I'm keeping from them, and I, I have none. It's not that I'm a complete open book and I share everything with everyone, but I have no big secret. I have no, I have nothing major. I think what it is, though, is like, and not to get too deep into like self-reflection here. I've got plenty of other things to talk about, but just to to finish that thought, like, I do think my life is very compartmentalized. And so with any given person I know, there's a chance that I'm not telling them something about a different part of my life, but it's because it's not relevant and I'd rather just not even get into it and have to explain it. Not that everybody's just chomping at the bit for me to explain my entire life to them. Although if you're listening to this show, maybe you are, maybe you do, maybe you are interested. Maybe you are, you are interested. Um, but it's like, for example, like I had these friends here for years that I hung out with all the time. It was when I drank all the time. I just noticed the, the sound levels are really hot. They're really hot. So if this, if this episode has a bunch of distortion and clipping, well, it's too late now. Because I'm just noticing that the, the volume, the, the gain is up. And we'll see how this sounds. Maybe it's a whole new sound. Oh, you, how did you get your sound? And when people say that about guitar, like they might as well, I mean... Uh, oh, never mind. Never mind. It was a stupid joke. But uh, 
how do you get your sound? I don't know. It's all an accident. Um, but, you know, for example, like I, there were these people I hung out with and drank with for years and like they had no idea. They knew that I drew a little bit and stuff, but it's like they had no idea that I had made music or played in like a band or this or that. And they were like really surprised and wanted to, to know more about it, which is really nice. You know, it's nice when people care, but it just it also just wasn't relevant. It was it's like when you're involved in some kind of niche thing. And it's not relevant to every relationship. I mean, that's how it's been for me with anybody, with anybody in my life. It's like everything I'm into or everything that I've done or everything that I think for that matter, it's not relevant to every single relationship I have. And I mean, with some people, you're close enough to where you can talk about almost anything. But it's like my life is very compartmentalized and I haven't quite found the right synthesis for it. I've tried in little ways, but it always feels a little weird. I think it's, I don't know, it just makes more sense to keep things somewhat distinct. But because of that, I think that plays into what I'm talking about, where it's like, because of that, though, it always feels like I'm keeping something from people. And I don't do that intentionally. It's not like I'm going around thinking, what can I withhold? What can I withhold from people? Um, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It's just how it is. But as a result, if it always, I think people always feel like I'm, yeah, just I have some big secret because people used to joke about me being a serial killer, not because I was creepy, but I mean, that was mostly just because if there was a certain point in time where if you were interested in serial killers and you read about serial killers and you knew about them by, you know, if you knew their names, people would just be like, oh, maybe you're a serial killer. Maybe you're a serial killer. You know, because that was before the big true crime boom. I mean, I mean, true crime's always been big. There's always been plenty of books on the true crime shelves at the bookstore. The bookstore. It's not like I'm saying there was a point where true crime wasn't a popular subject, but there was definitely a shift where like girls in particular started listening to true crime podcasts and like you meet girls now. Like if you meet a girl in her 20s or early 30s now, like on a first date, there's a 99.9% chance she'll ask you, who's your favorite serial killer? Mine is uh, Jeffy Jeffy Dahmer. Mine's Jeffy Dahmer. You know, there's a, there's a ninety nine point nine 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 chance that if you go on a date with a girl in two thousand in the late two thousand tens or early two thousand twenties, she will ask you who your favorite serial killer is, but only so that she can launch into what she has to say about her stories, like how old women call soap operas their stories, like oh I'm. I'm staying home today to watch my stories and drink tea. I'm watching my stories. That's how young women are with true crime podcasts. Or maybe it's, this trend is probably over by now. Maybe not. I don't know. It was pretty big, pretty popular. But uh, that's how young women are today. My stories. Stories about horrible things happening to people in reality. But people used to joke about that. I, I feel like that was less like me acting like a serial killer and more just the fact that you know, being interested in serial killers at a certain point in time would raise people's eyebrows. It's like you're not allowed to be interested in that. It's like if you're interested in World War II, it's like it's the same thing. Like if you actually know about the Third Reich, like you're not supposed to know anything like you're supposed to hate the Third Reich. You're supposed to see them as the worst people in history. And they make a pretty strong case, you know, of course. But 
you're not allowed to actually know that much about them because it, it turns out if you know if you actually know anything about the Third Reich, if you actually know anything of substance about Hitler or Nazi Germany, people start raising their eyebrows at that. Like I, I mentioned the story here recently about when I was in college, they were talking about neo-Nazis. And they were just pulling stuff out of their ass, like they were just like they like talking about different groups, and and I just I said something to the effect of like, basically it was probably some it, this wasn't it, but it was probably something like, oh well, did you know like the Aryan Brotherhood's actually a prison gang? Like you're like the the Aryan Brotherhood aren't the guys who are like going to the the white power rally at the Capitol steps. Like the Aryan Brotherhood is a very specific gang that traffics drugs and kills people and operates almost entirely from prison. Like, they're not the activists. And a lot of their leaders are Jewish, interestingly. Some of them. Some of the most famous Aryan Brotherhood leaders have actually had Jewish heritage. And just knowing that, though, it's like, it's like, it's like when people get upset at you for noticing. Like, you're supposed to see these guys as the big bad guys, but God forbid you actually know a little bit about them. And that's the funny thing about the world we're in, where it's like, oh, if you actually know a little bit about these people that you're supposed to hate, it's a problem. Where was I going with this? But uh, CIA, I don't know, it's funny, like, there is just like a general, I don't know, I wonder when that happened. Like, I, people have always been wary of spies. People have always been looking for schemes and plots, but I do wonder like when the idea of CIA assets, CIA agents, FBI, I mean, we can see where like some of these domestic terror plots get broken up and it turns out like everybody involved is an FBI informant and the person who instigated a lot of the, you know, the, the more drastic plans they had it turns out was an actual FBI agent, you know, not that that's the case always, but it's like it's always funny when those emerge. Um, but yeah, this, uh, the last thought was just on the serial killer thing where it's like, it used to be where if you knew too much about serial killers, you were suspect. In the same way that like, if you know too much about Nazi Germany, like if you, if even if, even beyond like Nazi Germany, if you just know too much about the politics of World War II, you start getting into weird territory. It's like, God forbid you be informed about important subjects. But then there was a shift with serial killers where like now it's readily accepted by a lot of people to just know a ton about those guys. And why shouldn't you? I mean, it's, it's one of the most interesting things you can study about human psychology, human behavior. It's not, it doesn't have to be just pure indulgence, even though a lot of it is. Even though a lot of people's interest in serial killers and true crime is this sort of perverse indulgence. Whatever, if that's what people want to get into, if that's their approach, that's their approach. That wasn't, that was an approach I tried to avoid, but still, if that's someone's approach, as long as they're not doing it, as long as they're not killing people, who cares if they get a little bit of a perverse indulgence out of it, you know? And women seem to get that today. Women seem to be really enjoying that perverse indulgence of true crime media. But 
but yeah, so I mean, that was, it was just a big dissection of me, a big dissection of me. It's just because people do tend to think that I have some big secret, but I'm not a CIA agent. I'm not a serial killer. I just don't tell everybody every single thing that I have going on. And that's weird to people. It's weird to people because like people are these kind of synthesized, like people are trying to create this synthesized version of themselves where everything makes sense. Where everything is kind of on the same stage. And I don't even know, I'm not even saying people are doing that consciously, but it is something they do. But anyway, yeah, just getting back to like the idea of um, the idea. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think it's good that people are thinking in that way. Like my friend, like my friend, just thinking like, hey, if if things get worse, and I don't even know what he meant by worse, because like I said, he's a pretty liberal guy, but even he's been turned off by what's gone on politically, socially, and culturally in recent years. And there's a lot of people like him out there who don't really say much, which is to their benefit. You know, it goes back to that Marshall McLuhan bit. Not a bit. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a joke, but it was just a, a take of Marshall McLuhan's from many years ago, pre-internet. But he was just talking about how the dictator in a an exposed information-based society gets more power by saying less. Like in a society where everybody is seeing into each other's lives and minds the way they are now, you have a lot of power by saying very little. And yeah, there's a certain sort of person who says, not not just a certain sort of person, there are specific activist groups who, who use the highly manipulative slogan of silence is violence, or your silence is deafening. And that's basically an interrogation tactic. Like, they don't have you in a room at gunpoint saying, we already know you did it, Johnson. We already know you did it, Mike. We already know you did it. So tell us, how'd you do it? You better tell us, Mike. You're going to be going to jail for a long time, but if you tell us, if you tell us what you did... If you tell us how you killed her, Mike, we might cut you a break. You know, they're not doing that. They don't have you in a room, but they're doing the social version of that. By saying, oh, silence is deafening. Silence is violence. It's presuming guilt. And by presuming guilt, by saying, oh, you're being silent because you're condoning the thing. This, you're condoning. By being silent, you're condoning the worst thing in the world. By being silent... You're condoning the worst thing in the world. And if you don't say something, if you don't speak out and say what we want you to say, we're just going to include you with that worst thing in the world anyway. That's an interrogation tactic. That's a mind game. It's a mind train. It's a speeding bullet. And a lot of people are easily manipulated by that. They are easily manipulated by that pressure. And the reason for that is because a lot of them are fairly indifferent or ambivalent. But when they're being told, if you don't say anything, 
you're as bad as the bad, you're as bad as the baddest bad guy. By not saying anything, you're as bad as the baddest bad guy. And I'm going to let people know. I'm going to hold you in contempt. I'm going to put you on my naughty list. Did you know I'm, I'm, the, I'm the psychological Santa Claus? I'm the psychological Santa Claus. And I'm keeping a list of who didn't say anything during summer 20. There's people out there, and you know this. There's people out there who didn't just mentally catalog who said things that they disagreed with during summer 2020. There's people who have a mental catalog of the people who didn't say anything. They remember that you didn't post the blah, blah, blah. You didn't, you didn't post the black square on June 1st. There's people who have that cataloged. And it comes out of them. It will come out of them. Um... So there's this, but the, but that interrogation of it all, like of the idea of like basically forcing a confession, because that's kind of what that is. When you say silence is violence, you know, when you when you tell people that in not saying anything, you're enabling or condoning or you're sus, you know, something horrible or you're or you're suspect in some way, you're basically forcing a confession. A lot of people's minds have have gotten broken by that psychology in the last couple of years. I mean, it's going on, that, that kind of thing, it's not new. That form of manipulation has been going on forever. I mean, it's not, it wasn't invented yesterday. But we've seen it intensified and applied to specific um, ways of thinking. And I do see it on the right. I don't feel that I have to make this a balanced conversation and say, look at the right wings doing it too. Of course they're doing it. It's, a, it's an ancient psychological technique that probably goes back to the dawn of man. Of course the right wing does it too. I see it less from them and I pay attention too. You know, I pay, I pay enough attention to the right wing that I should, if it was happening as often, I should see it. And I, I saw it during the election. I saw people on the right being like, if you don't vote for Trumpsfeld, you're supporting Biden. You're supporting Obama. If you don't vote for Trumpsfeld, you're supporting Obama and all the bad stuff. You know, it's the same sort of thinking. Like, if you don't do what I want you to do, if you don't say what I want you to say, you're supporting the worst possible thing in the world. That's that's the idea. And I yeah, the right the right does it as well. Although I see more pushback on the right. I see a lot more pushback from people on the right when someone's doing that. Where people will actually start criticizing the person who's using that technique. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, whereas on the left, I, I see it just not only wholly accepted, not only is that method wholly accepted, it's adopted. Because the people who have been forced to speak out, who've been forced to take that side, they now use the same technique. It's like, oh, I was forced to take a side. I was forced to express myself because they told me if I didn't that I was condoning neo-Nazis. And because I was forced to say something, you should be forced to say something. So that's going on as well. I wish I was a CIA asset.
No, not an asset. Because a CIA asset can be any number of things, but I wish I was a CIA agent. Maybe I shouldn't put that into the ether. But no, being a CIA agent, at least it, at least I would have a big secret. But that's a strange byproduct of living in these times, because, I mean, I'm pretty available. Like, I, I don't... I don't manufacture secrecy in my life. I pretty much say what I want. I have accounts. I have online accounts. I have a website. I have this show. Yeah, I don't think that I'm hiding. (laughs) Hiding. From anything. But that is one of the strange aspects of living in our world today where it's like we are supposed to present ourselves as this like synthesized version of everything that we are and if you present yourself publicly or if you make yourself available there's this idea that you should be making all of yourself available if you're going to show people any of yourself you got to show people all of yourself and part of it too comes from the fact that people really like to people like to think that they've figured other people out. And when they can't figure you out, which is just them spinning their wheels because there's nothing to figure out. There's nothing to figure out about most people, about me. Like what do you what are your interactions with me like? That's all you need to know. But we kind of have this idea that it's like if, if you can't figure somebody out, well, that's even bigger evidence that they're keeping a big dark secret from you. Oh, I think he's secretly a Republican. If I was a Republican, I'd tell you. My future wife's going to be a Republican. She's going to be a 25-year-old blonde Buddhist Republican. That doesn't have to be a natural blonde. I gotta make, I've been talking about this for a while, about how my, when I'm 45, I will marry a 25-year-old blonde Buddhist Republican girl who's going to be way... She's going to be hardcore, man. She's going to be hardcore. That's the word that I'm going to use. H- hardcore. She's going to think that I'm a pussy. No, she's going to... No, you know what? This, let's go... Let's just take this fantasy on right now. She's not going to think that I'm a pussy, but she's going to think that I'm not... I, I'm not going hard enough in the paint. I'm not right-wing enough. I'm not enlightened enough. I'm not, I'm not enough of a Buddhist Republican for her. Uh, you know, so she's going to push me. This is this is my fantasy, okay, not yours. Don't don't question my fantasy. You have no right to do that. The phantoms are really coming at me now. Um, but no, I, I've I've talked about that fantasy for years now, probably two years. But I want to clarify that she doesn't have to be a natural blonde. Doesn't have to be a natty blonde, as they say, a natty blonde. But it's cool. If, and you know what? She could be a natural blonde who also bleaches her hair to get a really, really almost white. Her hair is going to be almost white. But anyway, moving on, you know, I was talking about Misfits, Sam Hain uh, yesterday, last night. 
not going to talk too much more about that. But when I was listening to this interview with Damien, the guitarist for Samhain, one thing he said that I found funny was he was talking about how sometimes like you meet people through music that are just awful. And that was the word he used, awful, because he brought up Sonic Youth. And, you know, he's, he's a guy, too, where he stayed out of the limelight. Like, he was in a cool band in the 80s. He's since played with Iggy Pop. But he's not a guy who's ever milked it. You know, Damien, which isn't his real name, but Dame, I, I know him as Damien. I knew him as Damien. Damien, though, he, uh, you know, he hasn't exploited the fact that he was in Samhain. He really hasn't. He's a very kind of low-key, measured guy. But he did volunteer in this interview. He did, he did volunteer that he thinks Sonic Youth are truly awful people. Like, he was giving an example of how, like, sometimes you come across musicians that are just truly just bad people. And his go-to example was Sonic Youth, which I found funny. Because I've always had kind of a, a I don't know, kind of like a, uh, I'm not a Sonic Youth fan. I, I respect what they did and everything. I'm not out to say Sonic Youth is a bad band. My sister was into Sonic Youth. I I inherited a tape from her. Like when she moved on to other things, I ended up with a Sonic Youth tape that I might have listened to for a second once. It just wasn't for me. But then later when I became an adult, like a teenager and adult, like you couldn't avoid Sonic Youth references. Like at that point, that was around the time that like Thurston Moore was ramping up his campaign to touch everything. Like around by 2005, 2006, you really couldn't watch, you know, you couldn't watch music. Like around that time, it started around that time where it was like he started to appear in every single music documentary, giving his take on some artist. And he, he, uh, yeah, he just started to get involved in everything. And then that was when the black metal trend, like the, the mid 2000s black metal trend was picking up where like tons of guys who were otherwise outsiders to metal were starting bands and all of a sudden they were like Mr. Black Metal, Mr. Black Metal. And I mean, some cool people fit into that as well, but you know, there were also a lot of people really wanting to put their fingers on black metal around the mid 2000s and it kind of continued for a few years and Thurston Moore was right there among them and you know somebody could say oh you know what I bet I bet Thurston Moore was listening to heavy metal before you were even born I bet he was I bet he was I bet he heard everything before I was born you know I bet I bet he was into it before I was born but it's just why does he need to be included why do you need his review, his commentary? Why does he need to be in the documentary? Because, you know, it starts out where, like, Thurston Moore is in documentaries about Daniel Johnston. And Sonic Youth come across as pieces of shit in that documentary, too. I don't even know him. I don't, I don't, I'm not even saying they're pieces of shit. They just kind of give me a bad feeling, something about them, not even musically, not anything, just something about them. And, and I mean, the reason why when Damien said that, it made me laugh. It's because like I have a friend, my friend Miles, I don't, I don't think he'll be upset that I'm saying this, but like we've been talking about this for, you know, 15, 16 years, just this. And he was a Sonic Youth fan growing up. Um, so he's coming from that point of view. But both of us have just noticed this, what was going on with Thurston Moore, where it just, speaking of CIA assets, I mean, if anybody's a CIA, CIA asset, it's that guy. But he started to show up in documentaries about like indie rock and like 
lo-fi music where it's like, oh, he's he's giving a Daniel Johnston story. And then you flash forward a few years and he, he shows up in documentaries about French black metal. And then there was even, because there was this, this old French black metal band who, like, I have no illusions about. Like, I knew they were just kids doing their thing. What they did was impressive. It was interesting. But, like, he, Thurston Moore tracked them down today, and these photos surfaced of him jamming with them, and they're just these, like, you know, 40-year-old guys in France, and it's, like, Thurston Moore jamming with them, and it's like, did you need to touch them? Did you need to touch that thing? Because that's a dilemma I run into constantly, where I'm like, even if I love something, I don't want to touch it. Because you end up leaving like your little smudgy fingerprint on it. And why do you need to do that? Like if I love something, yeah, I, I, I probably run the risk of doing that with my radio show with every night to school night where it's like I'm putting my grubby fingers on it. I'm, you know, curating something. I mean, it's not like you should never curate. It's not like you should never attach yourself to the things you like. I mean, it's unavoidable. But I guess it's just like, if you have a certain amount of influence, if you have a certain presence, like, what makes you want to put your fingerprints on it? Especially if it's something that was cool partially because it existed in its own vacuum. And yeah, you can say, oh, nothing truly exists in a vacuum. And like... The guys from that French band, they probably were Sonic Youth fans, for all I know. It was probably their Make-A-Wish Foundation fantasy to jam with Thurston Moore. I don't know. It's none of my business. But you can see this trend with that guy of him just continually kind of interfering and, and attaching himself. And part of it is that people come to him, but it's like not having the restraint. Not having the discipline and restraint to say, you know what, I don't need to put my name on that thing. Even if it's just coming from a pure place of support, I don't need to touch that. And you know, you know, this is this is gonna sound like some sort of brag, but it's really not. But you know, many years ago I found out he bought a record I was on, a record I made. Somebody emailed me and they were like, I I just sold a copy of that to to Thurston Moore. And it was, it's, it was cool in the same way that it was cool to hear that anybody... And I, don't, I don't know that he liked it. I don't know that he even listened to it. I mean, I think that guy buys a ton of records. I mean, he probably has slaves or other CIA assets that buy records for him and vet them or just, or just put them on his shelves. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming a whole lot. I do know he's a CIA asset, and I doubt he listens to all the records he, he buys, but... He, anyway, he bought a record that I was that I made, uh, and I, I don't know if he even listened to it. It was cool in the same way that like hearing about anybody buy my record was cool. You know, it was cool in that sense. And I, I mean, I have a very very small audience. Had a small audience. I don't even know whether to talk in past, present, or future. I don't, I don't know what's what is time. But just point being, it was just it was interesting to hear that. It's like, oh, that's cool. It's not like how da- like I don't have some preloaded hatred for the guy at all, despite how this sounds. And you know, on one level, it's cool that somebody who was accomplished, very accomplished, and is famous, bought my record. That's cool, but it doesn't mean any more than a random dude. I mean, like I, you know, getting any kind of feedback from anybody, especially if it's some nobody. 
You know, if it's somebody you've never heard of who's just some guy in, in the Midwest, you know, to me, that's always been more satisfying to me to hear that they liked it because it means more to that person. If you do something creative and some random guy in Ohio likes it, I don't know. Who knows what it means? <laughs> I'm, I'm going out there here. I don't I got to I got to reel this one back in, but I don't know. Just I, I guess it's like I want to get away from like Sonic Youth because I, I don't want this to come across like I'm, you know, like I have any misgivings toward them as a band or even as people. I don't know them, but I guess I just see certain people and they they can't seem to avoid putting their fingerprints on things. And I mean, a great example of that too is there was this shitty black metal supergroup that formed. It was various U.S. bands. And they formed their own super group. And it was all guys in black metal bands who had been in black metal bands. There was one of them I liked, like one of the guys in the band. I like his band, but most of them are things that just I'm indifferent or ambivalent to toward. And uh, but then sure enough, like you can see like the degeneration and just the way that that trend kind of ramped up and blew its load. I don't even know that it blew its load. I think it got really erect and then nothing happened. Uh, but you can like with that with this uh, black metal quote unquote super group. It was a super group, dude. Wouldn't it be cool if these like five guys with one who have bedroom black metal bands start their own super group? Oh, it's gonna be so good. It's completely awful. Not even awful, just a waste of time. But uh, sure enough, like you flash forward a couple years and like. What was once like this U.S. black metal super group has Thurston Moore as a member. The guy from ISIS, and I wish I was talking about the terrorist group, but it's like the guy from that band ISIS and Thurston Moore are now members of a black metal supergroup. And if you say, if you question that, it's like you're just being a hater. You know, you're just being, um, you're being immature. But I think that's the great thing about metal and music is that it is a license to be immature because the entire culture is based on immaturity. There's a neoteny to it. There's something just inherently childish about caring about music. I mean, I feel like a child right now. I feel like a child right now talking about this stuff. I do. But it's like to be a participant in music, to be a fan, to be a musician, there is something kind of inherently immature about it. And you just see, you think, you see where people though can't seem to resist like putting their fingers on things. And it's like, do you really need to leave your fingerprint? And because I mean, I take that philosophy sometimes, even with uh, like contacting people. Like I'll hear about somebody contacting some guy from some band, and then like nobody ever contacts that guy, and he'll send them all this old stuff. Like I, I heard about a guy. There was a band that some friends and I were into that kind of fell off the radar. They only did a few things, and then they fell off the radar. And then, like, I found out through one of my friends that this other guy, this, like, record store clerk, wrote to that guy. And because nobody writes to that guy, he sent him all this stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess, like, the early bird gets the worm. But sometimes I feel sick being the early bird. Like, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't contact somebody who was in a band, somebody who did something I like, because why do I need to touch that? Why do I need to touch that? Let's just keep it at a distance. 
but you know, I should I should get this. I want I do want to go back to the Sonic Youth thing to like the guy Damien from Samhain saying that <laughs> him using Sonic Youth as the ultimate example of awful people, and he didn't explain what that meant. He didn't say what it was that made them such awful people. But, you know, that's not a reason to dislike them. Like, I want to make that clear. Like, hearing that Sonic Youth are considered awful people and the fact that, like, they Thurston Moore puts a really bad taste in my mouth with the way that he seems to, you know, stretch his long arms out and kind of just grab hold of everything. You know, that wouldn't make any difference to me if I was a fan. You know, because I'll talk on this show about how, like, it bothers me that people listen to music or, or they just anything. It could be anything, but sticking with music, the way that people will like be like, oh, well, like I heard that he was an asshole or he believes this thing that I don't believe in. Therefore, I can't support him anymore. Fuck him. Dude, Danzig made comments about how Planned Parenthood is harvesting baby organs. Fuck him and his music, dude. Fuck, dude, fuck him and his music, man. Oh, my God. Like, Morrissey, Morrissey supported Brexit. Brexit. Fuck him, dude. Yeah. You know, I'm very against that way of thinking. If you want to think that way, you can. I can't stop you, but I'm very against thinking that way myself. So it's like, for me, it's like, finding out that people don't like Sonic Youth as people. That makes no difference to me as far as like who they are and what they do. And, and if you notice, in, in all this gossip and shit-talking I've been doing the last 10 minutes, I haven't said anything bad about Sonic Youth, like their music or anything. Like I, It's kind of like Tool. <laughs> Dude, that guy's, that guy's crazy. He thinks Sonic Youth is like Tool. No, it's kind of like Tool, though, in that way, where it's like, I'm not going to tell a fan of that that it sucks. And people are devoted to it. But it's one of those things like Tool where I I always forget what it even sounds like. Like, I'm never left with a permanent mental image. It's just like hearing the wind or something. Where it just kind of comes and goes. Like, I heard a gust of something, but I don't remember. It didn't stay with me. That's what a lot of bands are like. A lot of bands that people really care about. But to me, they're just kind of like a gust of wind when I hear them and I kind of forget about what it was. I just, I remember the feeling. I remember like the sensation of a gust of wind blowing past me. I remember the fact that I stood in front of a pair of speakers and I heard Tool or Sonic Youth coming out of them. But I wouldn't be able to tell you what I actually heard. And I didn't care because it's a lot of it is just indifference. But I don't know. I mean, just that the psychology of just attaching yourself to things is so interesting to me, especially somebody who's already proven themselves. Because the sort of argument that I heard, because I mean, believe it or not, and I think you can probably believe it if you know music fans, but Thurston Moore has been a kind of a topic of debate for years. Not just my friend and I having our own little thing where it's like, yeah, does he really need to comment on everything? Does he really need to appear in every documentary? Does he really need to be involved in black metal now? You know, it's like, even though we've had that thought, he's been kind of a debate for years. And in part because of what I'm talking about here, not just whatever reputation he has with people like Sam Hain, but also just, you know, his reputation for just getting involved in everything, for being kind of like omnipresent You know, people do kind of see that and raise an eyebrow. But one of the arguments I've heard, and I have heard this argument, people are like, well, he's just a big fan. 
He's just a big fan. He's like a big kid. He just he he just loves music. I'm gonna take this mic off the stand for a second. I've never done this. Maybe I have. I'm holding the mic right now like an MC. Um, this is interesting. Holding the mic like I'm on stage right now, like I'm singing. He's just a big kid. It's my song. This is gonna be my thong. Uh, <laughs> this is gonna be my song about Thurston Moore. He's just a big kid, collecting all those records. He's just a big kid. I'm a psycho. I am. I'm a psychopath singing lyrics like that. But uh, no, but that's kind of the argument. He's like, he's just a big kid. He's just like a big. He's just like a big kid. It's like kids are are terrors. Putting, I'm done with that. I'm done holding the mic that way. No, kids can be terrors. And I've never really understood the argument of like he's just a big kid. A kid will fill uh, a kid will fill your mailbox up with dirt. A kid will break every valuable object in your house. A kid will get done eating a peanut butter sandwich and grab your grandmother's urn and leave peanut butter smears on it. I rented a video game when PlayStation was new. I rented a PlayStation game. That was so fucked. Totally off topic, but renting PlayStation games because they were discs, because they were CDs, you'd rent them and they'd just be so scratched. They'd be so badly taken care of. It's like the whole rental video game rental industry didn't prepare very well for the transition from cartridges to discs. But one time I rented some game and I looked at the bot. Fortunately, I looked at the bottom before putting it into my PlayStation and it literally had a giant thumbprint of peanut butter. It sure looked like peanut butter. It had a giant thumbprint of peanut butter on the bottom. And I was just like, that is so disgusting. So, you know, no doubt a kid did it. Or an adult who is like a big kid. So it's always funny to me when people are like, he's just like a big kid. It's like a, like kids take hammers. And I mean, we knew a kid, my family knew a kid who took a hammer and the family had just put in new windows, new like French windows or whatever you call them, like the little panels. Like when you have tons of little panels of windows. He took a hammer right after the family put those in and he broke every single one. I mean, he, he was re- that kid was really messed up. But he's like a big kid. He ruins everything. He breaks everything. He gets his hands on everything. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure I would love Thurston more. I got no beef. Just don't touch me. Don't touch me. Because that's kind of what it's like, though. When when people are like that, when there are people out there who kind of have their hands on everything, it is kind of like somebody who doesn't have a sense of personal space, like somebody who can't help but like touch your arm, touch your shoulder put their arm around you. I feel like it's the same idea, just a lack of personal space. And I don't know. And for me too, it just comes down to like being a fundamentally different type of person as far as like how I approach art, where it's like the art doesn't depend on me being personally connected to it. And you can see where that's important to people. Like people who are in in the audience of a show and are like, did you see that he looked at me? Oh, I think when Danzig was pointing to the crowd, he was pointing at me. I kind of noticed that he made eye contact with me. 
when he pointed to the crowd in, in his leather gloves. People do that. Oh, when he threw the pick randomly, when the guitarist threw the pick randomly into the crowd, I think he meant to throw it to me. I got it. I got the pick. Those connections are cool. Like it's cool to feel connected to something that you care about, but it's extremely egotistical. It's like your relationship to that thing depends on you being humored. Like I still remember like there was this guy, he was in a a pretty big doom metal band in the 2000s. And he got very he personally got very popular cuz he was involved in a lot of things. And I heard this story about him where where some guy he was DJing. He he was doing a DJ set one night. And some guy who was a big fan of this guy's bands put a demo CDR on the guy's DJ rig when he wasn't there, like so that it would be there for him when he got back. Like, I'm just going to leave this here. I'm just going to leave my demo CDR on your doorstep. And if you get it and you like it, uh, cool. You know. So he left, he left his demo on this guy's DJ rig on his turntables or something when... The guy wasn't there. And then when the guy came back, he saw the guy who left it, saw this guy. He, he looked down at the CDR and he just like swiped it off. <laughs> he just like took his hand and he just like swept his hand down and just like knocked it off the table. Like didn't even look at it, didn't even pick it up. And I'm sure this guy at that time, he was involved with a record label. I, I don't know this guy, but he was pretty big at that time. A lot of people were a lot of people were gushing over him and, you know, adoring him and wanting a piece of him. And he was, he just swiped this demo off, like so callous. He was probably drunk, you know, I mean, who knows? It's just like, he didn't want to deal with it. And some guy just, it's like a guy left him something that he didn't want to deal with. And that guy went online afterward and he like, he tried to smear this guy. He's like, this guy did this to me. Oh, this guy, I put my demo CD on his DJ equipment and he just swiped it off. You know, it's like, yeah, that is a dick move. But it's like, whatever happened to the fact that like heavy metal is for badasses? Like whatever happened to the fact that like you're supposed to be kind of tough? I'm not saying you actually have to be the thing that you're role playing as. Like I was saying last night in the episode, it's not like these guys, like when I used to look back at, you know, guys in bands I liked and I was like, oh man, like they're pretty much biker gang members. It's almost like they're biker gangs. And it's like, oh wait, they've been obsessively playing music since the time they were a teenager. When did they have time to be hardened criminals? You know, a lot of these guys are artsy. No matter how they look, how they sound... A lot of them are artsy. No matter how much they become the thing they're trying to be, often through like drugs and alcohol, whatever else, uh, you know, most of these people aren't actually really, really tough. And that's fine. That's I'm not either. I'm not very tough. Um, But these guys who like your feelings would be hurt by that, like this guy who who plays in a metal band swiped your demo off of his you left you left your demo cdr and his dj rig and he knocked it off you know it's it, whatever you know it, yeah that, i imagine that would hurt your feelings but it's a good opportunity it's a good opportunity to be like what did i really expect and i actually sort of like I've, i have had a couple interactions where someone was a dick to me someone who i admired 
was a dick to me. It hasn't happened a lot, but it, like once or twice. And you know, I actually ended up with more appreciation. Like obviously there's a, you know, there's, there's a cutoff point. Like, oh, somebody I admired, I said that I, I'm a big fan and he reached down the front of my pants and pulled my dicky out and cut it off. But, you know, I actually have more respect for him than that. I, I have, I, I, you know, I, I, I kind of respect him for that because he's not worried about kissing my ass as a fan. No, obviously there's a limit to it. But it is one of those things where I haven't been offended when somebody I admire doesn't like give in and play the game. But some people are looking, they, they, it's like whatever's going on, like I'm not going to call it daddy issues. I'm, I don't know what to call it. But like some people are looking for this sort of like parental approval from artists they like. Like dad got home from work and, and instead of listening to my demo tape, he threw it in the garbage. It's like, what are you trying to do? So, so for me, it's like, it's never been important to feel like the band I like likes me. The artists I like think like me and they think I'm cool. But that's in people's minds, you know, and, and I have been, I've been paying close attention to music on this sociological level my entire life. And I, I've seen these things play out where it's like, People are looking to feel validated, and, and they're not wrong for wanting that. We all want that. I want that. I want validation, of course. But you're looking at it from this twisted point of view. And then, too, it's like, why can't you allow things to exist in their own vacuum? That's sort of like one of the bigger questions of this episode, I guess, is, you know, what is it about needing to put your stamp on it? What is it about needing to attach yourself to it? You know, and I even get that way myself with every night's a school night where once in a while I'll come across like somebody either talking about or like sharing a song that I've played on every night's a school night. And they're people who never have heard of me or my show or anything. And I'll see it and I almost feel like proprietary. It's like, uh, did you know that I played that song seven years ago? Did you know that I played that song seven years ago? It's almost like I want to like send them a link to some like school every night's a school night episode from 2013 and be like, did you know that I played that seven years ago, eight years ago? That's your ego. That's the jewel. That's the jewel hunter, the jewel possessor. You know, you, you attach yourself to things. I mean, that's how people feel about music in general. Like even people who are into very popular music. Like, I mean, just walk down. I mean, when I was growing up, you walk down a hallway in high school and you'll hear somebody say like, eh, you know, like I was the first one at this school to listen to Radiohead. I was the first one in this school to listen to Radiohead. You know, you'll hear people say things like that, even though Radiohead, Radiohead's a huge band, even though Radiohead is a huge a huge band. There's still somebody in that school who's thinking, well, I was the first one to wear a Radiohead shirt. 
And then there's somebody else who's just like the more the merrier. The more the merrier, the more Radiohead fans means the more people talking about Radiohead, the more people benefiting from Radiohead's music. So, of course, there's people like that who just are are more naturally, spiritually mature than other people (laughs) when it comes to those things. But that doesn't mean that person isn't possessive about something else. Um but I don't, I don't want to lose track of the, the idea of like allowing things to exist in their own space where we want to somehow connect ourselves. We want to be a part of it or we want to connect that thing to something else. And I mean, it kind of goes back to compartmentalization too, where it's like people have a difficult time compartmentalizing their interests and their taste. And, and the most difficult thing to compartmentalize of all is yourself. Like what people struggle with is compartmentalizing themselves in relation to something else. Like it's hard to be a music fan or it's hard to be, I mean, you even see it with science, like the way people are, like, like the, the whole, like there's that whole, uh, I don't know where it came from. I think I first saw it. It was a Facebook group. But it was some sort of group called, like, I fucking love science. And somebody pointed this out recently, but it really fits into what I've been saying about swearing. And I've been swearing again more lately. I've relapsed. But somebody was talking about how liberals emphasize their points with with, with fucking a lot now. Like, they'll say, like, like for example, like, these they, they made these... Uh, posters like these these bus stop posters at some university in new york i think it is maybe columbia and they say wear the fucking mask they say this in huge letters at a bus stop it says wear the fucking mask get the fucking vaccine and somebody commented on that and i found it very interesting because i instantly knew what they were talking about they were talking about how the the modern left especially younger people on the left they'll use fucking with this they'll emphasize fucking like like i'm going to try to explain this as well as this person did i don't know who to give credit to i saw it in passing but it was like for example it's like the emphasis isn't on the word mask the emphasis isn't on where the fucking mask the the emphasis is on where the fucking mask and i've noticed that, that sort of phrasing has come up again and again, especially politically. And the fact that that's enough of a pattern for some random guy I don't know to have recognized and that I myself immediately knew what he was talking about. And I know I have friends that would know exactly what I'm talking about as well. Wear the fucking mask. But, um... How did I get into that? How did I get there? Um, <laughs> see, the culture war just inserts itself. It just it just shows right up. The culture war is always available if you need it. Um, swearing. I don't know. Who cares? Sometimes I, I, I ruin my train of thought by trying to get back on track. But, uh, you know, attaching yourself to things. Yeah, I was going to talk about like compartmentalizing. (laughs) 
that was a real non sequitur, I feel like, a minute ago there. But uh, no, getting back to like compartmentalizing yourself is the hardest part of being interested in things. Oh, I was talking about like, I fucking love science. That's what it was. Thank you. Thank God I remembered because I, I did want to, I didn't want to lose that point. What reminded me of the swearing thing, like the wear the fucking mask on these professionally printed signs at a university bus stop. Like, I fucking love science. And it's the same exact people. The same people who say things, who who make professionally printed signs that say, wear the fucking mask, get the fucking vaccine. Those are the same people who who were probably followers of I fucking love science. It's the same phraseology. And it comes across like disingenuine to me when I hear that. But what I was getting at with that, with like the, I fucking love science, is it's not even about science. These aren't even necessarily smart scientific people, but they find science interesting. And they, they, it becomes a part of their identity. Where it's now, I need to communicate to people that I'm really into science. And I, I've gone on at length about how one of the reasons people do that is to signal that they're smart. Because there are some interests where if you tell somebody you're into something, the presumption is that, oh, only smart people are interested in that. Oh, he, he, oh, he says that he really likes math. Oh in, her tin, oh, in her Tinder profile, she just says right out that she really likes math. That must mean she's smart. Oh, she says, she says that she fucking loves science. That must mean she's smart. You know, it's a way to signal... And a lot of smart people do like science. A lot of smart people do like math. But it's funny to me that just saying you are interested in those things signals that you're smart. And that's what a lot of this stuff is. It's like when you broadcast to the world that I fucking love science. You're broadcasting to the world like I'm smart and I'm attaching myself to science. And it's what people do with music as well, where it's like you can't just be like I'm a music fan. And inevitably part of who you are, it's going to come you know, inevitably part of you will be attached to this stuff. But it's kind of like when kids cover themselves in patches. And I mean, I was that kid. I was that teenager who bought a bunch of patches and put them on my clothes of the bands I liked. I was a walking billboard for bands. I was always excited to get a new band shirt. Oh, I get to wear it now. Not only do I have the joy of purchasing it at a concert or getting it in the mail, now I get to wear it. It becomes a part of me. It becomes a part of my self-expression. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's sort of what other people's interests are in any given subject. Like when someone broadcasts that they're really into science, they're basically putting a patch on. And you you even see that now. I mean, you see people with NASA gear. You see people who have never worked at NASA wearing NASA merch. Like you see NASA shirts, NASA hats. They're fans. I mean, all that is, it's fandom. It's the NASA fandom. So it's, it's really no different than just wearing a band shirt. Oh, he must, oh he's wearing a NASA, he's wearing a NASA shirt. He must be smart. It's kind of the same thing. Like, oh, he's wearing a band shirt. He must be interesting. (laughs) Dude must be interesting. 
But no, it's, it, a lot of it's about signaling. And it's not like signaling is horrible, but you have to call it what it is. And that's the hard thing. That's the really hard thing about all of this is that sometimes simply calling something what it is comes across negative. And part of that is because we're trying to deny it all the time. It's not necessarily because signaling is that bad. It's like anything else. There's good signaling, bad signaling. You know, there, there's all kinds of signaling. Um, but you got to call it what it is. It's just that calling it what it is happens to sound negative because we've all been lying. We've all been in such deep, we've been in such a deep state of denial and dishonesty that somebody simply pointing out the truth becomes, oh shit. Oh shit. Oh God. He found out that I'm only wearing a NASA shirt. Because I want people to think that I'm I'm into I fucking love science and I'm smart. But it's like separating yourself from all those things is so hard to do. And you can never do it completely. But this does play into spirituality, it does play into Buddhism, it does play into attachment, the ego. Because one of the practices is learning how to separate yourself from life itself, but in doing so, you become more a part of it. And that's fascinating, the fact that by not heavy-handedly attaching yourself to something, you actually become you actually become closer to being it. You actually, you you gain a greater harmony. You become part of the wholeness because, you know, on a larger level, it's like that practice allows you to become part of the whole of life itself, of this whole experience, of this whole phenomenon. But that also happens in specific instances too, where you can become more you you can you can enter a greater harmony with something by not investing your ego into it but it's very difficult to do especially with some subjects i mean imagine trying to do that with politics i mean i'm that's what i'm trying to do when i do think about politics when i do talk about politics that's what i hope to do but i know that i fail when i do talk about music that's what i hope to do but i also know that i fail If I was, I mean, I am interested in science. That's a funny thing. Despite all of the science talk I, I do, despite all of the, despite the severe whiplash that the current scientific culture has given me, I still find science very interesting. And that's kind of the funny part, the sad part, really, is that I'm just as interested in scientific discoveries, scientific developments as many people. But I feel no personal attachment to it. But I, I do feel, I still feel personally attached to many other things. And it's no coincidence that those things torture me. Like, even though I'm a much different person with regards to music than I was 10, 20 years ago, and I love it more than anything, it tortures me. And a lot of that torture is my ego, a lot of that torture is my attachment. 
And no matter how much I try to detach myself, I'm still, there's still something. There's still threads connecting me. I don't know, like, uh, every once in a while I'll get stoned and just have this hour or two, and it's just, it's scathing. It's not, I don't even go deep with it. It's just kind of this, like, this surface level burn where I'll just, like, thoughts will come to me about my own expression, things I said to somebody, things I did. Why did I do this? And it's, it's a scathing process. It's not bad, though. It's good. I mean, it burns off some of the dead wood. But in the, that one or two hours is harsh. But, I mean, I can't imagine being someone like Thurston Moore. Like, he probably smokes weed or, you know, something. But, like, what does that guy feel? I mean, maybe that guy has nothing to worry about. Maybe that guy's got it all figured out. Maybe I am just a hater. I don't, I don't feel any hatred toward the guy, but maybe I am just being, uh, you know, maybe I am just being unnecessarily <laughs> hard on this guy. But I can just imagine that guy getting stoned and then like thinking about all the shit he does. And it's just like, did I really need to, did I really need to appear in that documentary about French black metal? I would probably think that. I would think that right now. If I was in that documentary, I would be thinking that right now. Did I really need to get involved in that? But what does it matter? I'm a CIA agent. I'm a CIA agent. My assignment, my beat. They assign CIA, CIA agents a beat, just like they do detectives. And my beat is all the stuff I talk about on this show. My assignment is this. I mean, you, you, you want to talk about getting stoned and seeing yourself under a harsh light. I can't even imagine what a CIA agent would go through. Can't, like, imagine the, one of those guys who was giving Viagra to tribal leaders in Afghanistan so that they could, you know, sodomize boys in their war against the Taliban. Imagine, like, what that CIA agent would think if you got him stoned and just sat him down in a room with nothing we're going to we're going to sit you down in a room and get you high but you also wonder if people like that would even care like are people like that so hardened are they so sociopathic that would it even matter to them kind of like how you know so many serial killers smoked weed like Tommy Lynn Sells and Ted Bundy, they would get stoned before they would kill people. Weed bonds to its host. So if you're somebody who's self-reflective and willing to criticize yourself, maybe weed lends itself to that. Whereas if you're somebody who just goes out into the world and gets what you want and touches what you want, you know, maybe weed just facilitates that too. I don't know. I don't know why this became a weed discussion. I guess just because I think about these different tools that we have available that make us question what we're doing. And sometimes that kind of plagues you like a low-grade virus where you just kind of feel it in your gut that you're not doing the right thing. But then every once in a while, something will cause you to see yourself in a very harsh light. And for some people, that's a breakup. You know, one of the reasons people have such a hard time with breakups 
is because there's often an exchange of data, of data, where a girl will break up with you and say, I really didn't like this, this, and this. Here's the thing I don't like about you. Oh, you said this. I had a girl break up with me and she is still, I think I, I probably, I must have talked about this before, but still it was like, she said like basically a guy she knew did something horrible to her. And I referred to him. I never even met the guy, but I referred to him as a scumbag when she told me about it. And then when she broke up with me, she was like, I really didn't like that. You called my friend a scumbag. It's like, do you know what a scumbag is? Like she had looked up scumbag and I'm like, don't you realize that's an inoffensive thing to say, especially because what the guy did is, is something a scumbag does. It was one of the weirdest, uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, in restaurants where you like leave a, a card or you, you fill out that form, like a feedback form, you rate the service. It's like, she gave me one of those and like every once in a while, like someone will write something really weird. Like uh, the waitress's, the waitress's hair was not naturally curly. You could tell she had a perm. It's like, wait, what does that have to do with eating at this diner? That's kind of what it was like when this girl said, like, I, and I really didn't like how you used the word scumbag. It's like scumbag. That stuck in your brain. That that, that out of all the things, like, I didn't even mean it that way. Like she, she took, she basically was like, that means a used condom. She said something like that. And I was like, I, I never even visualized a used condom. Scumbag is like what they say in movies. It's like Clint Eastwood. It's a a very, I, I, I don't even think of it as profane. It's not something you say about just anybody. Like you, you should reserve it when referring to scumbags. But it's not something that I think of as particularly horrible. But you can see I'm still thinking about it today. Like, because it, it confused the heck out of me. Like, on our, during, and it was like during our breakup conversation. She brought up the fact that I used the word scumbag. And it's like, you know that wasn't meant to be. <laughs> like, if nothing else, I can look back at that and go, okay, like, even if at the time I was a little upset and heartbroken over the whole thing. The fact that she made a big deal out of my use of the word scumbag once. It's not like I was going around saying scumbag all the time. Like, I, like I, we weren't going around on dates, hanging out, and where I was going, scumbag. He's a scumbag. Oh, see him? He's a scumbag. Over there? That's a scumbag. You know, it's not like I was going around calling everybody scumbags. Like, I, I could see if I, if I used the word scumbag so much that she got sick of it. I became the scumbag to her because, you know, and what's funny about that is basically what she was saying to me when she when she got mad at me for using the word scumbag. Well, and what's interesting is she didn't get mad the first like she didn't get mad when I actually used it. She brought it up way later, and that's almost like some sort of I mean, that might as well be some bad stand up comedy act about how like women will never forget the thing. The thing about being involved with a woman is you'll do something and then five years later she brings it up. You know, that's like a bad old stand-up comedy routine, but there's truth to it. Like she brought this up like 
a significant chunk of time later when she was breaking up with me. And I could, I would totally understand if I was just dropping the word scumbag all the time, scumbag, scumbag, scumbag. You know, if I was saying it all the time and she just got sick, but like she was basically saying to me, you use the word scumbag. That makes you a scumbag. That might, she might as well have said that to me because you use the word scumbag. You're a scumbag. I, I never thought so much about the word scumbag until she said it. I'm just like, huh. But, you know, sometimes they'll say, like, in that case, I'll, I'll completely defend that. Like, I don't seem, I didn't see myself under a harsh light because she said that, but I had to think about it. I had to go home and think about the fact that she said that. I'm still thinking about it because it was crazy. But, you know, when you break up with somebody, sometimes they will say something or just the whole process makes you look at yourself and you're just like, fuck. You know, I, that, that's rough. And up until that point, you might not have been thinking about it. Like you start, you're like, man, like I'm now seeing myself through the lens of somebody who thought they needed to break up with me. I am seeing myself right now through the eyes of somebody who thought that I, (laughs) I, 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 I mean, just think about that. Like, when someone breaks up with you, like you're kind of seeing yourself through the eyes of somebody who thought, I don't want to be directly involved with that person anymore. And so, of course, that's going to do a number on you. Weed does that too. You don't have to get into a relationship and get your heart broken to go through that process. There are different things that bring that out. There are different things that will shake up your reality. So you start looking at yourself and seeing yourself in a different light. And it's healthy to do that. Like, it's good. Like, when someone breaks up with you, that is a great opportunity to look at yourself. Some people dwell there. Some people just dwell in that place. They they just wallow in it. But it's a good opportunity to see yourself and be like, well, is that something that I want to change? Or am I pretty much set in this? Am I, am I cool with this? And in my case, with the scumbag thing, my take was, listen, baby. I ain't going to stop using the word scumbag. You're not going to make me feel bad. You're not going to make me feel bad for using the word scumbag. I'm not going to stop, okay? I'm not going to stop. Because that is how I feel about that one. But there there are other situations where you go, okay, you know what? She had a point. And I don't really like that about myself either. I don't really like that about myself either. And so it's a good opportunity to change. Same thing happens with weed. Like sometimes you'll get too high and you just think like, fuck. Have I really been doing this? Have the decisions I've made really led me to this place? What am I going to do? Am I retarded? Because that's a big one. I had that thought like that's, that's it turns out that's a very common thought. I've talked to a number of people over the years, especially when they were younger, like because usually with weed, when you're younger, well, especially if you're doing it with friends, sometimes you're on you're on an adventure, you're, you're kind of like in this buzz, it's a social experience. So there's not really time to reflect. You're not really left with your own thoughts. It can still happen. Like I had a friend, one of my good friends in high school. 
we just all we always had a great time on weed. We just we'd pull off somewhere and smoke and hang out. And there was this one time though where like he just he was having a good time. He and I were in the back seat. There were two friends in the front seat. He and I were just like joking about something and then all of a sudden I just like looked over and he, he had just gone totally silent and his mouth was open and he was just staring straight ahead. And I was like, are you okay? And he was like, yeah. And you could tell he was going through a deep, dark existential crisis. And he, uh, and then then like a few minutes later, he was like, guys, I need, can you, can you unlock the door? I just, I just need to go lay down. And while we were just hanging out, smoking weed in this car, he got out of the car and he laid down. We we were at a church. We were at, at a church at night. And this, this particular church had like a weird side road, like almost like an alleyway that nobody used. And so you could park in this alleyway. You could park along the side of the church and nobody would bother you. And so he was just laying there on the concrete or gravel or whatever it was just on his back while we were like laughing and having a good time. And so you, you could still have moments like that. And I've had so many moments like that. But I, you don't really have them as much when you're like, socially smoking weed it can happen as my friend showed but still you don't have those as much but when you get older you have more time you have more life experience to reflect on especially if things aren't perfect you have a lot more that you can look at and overanalyze and i found that it can be very beneficial you know it can be very beneficial to get too stoned and sometimes that could be one hit sometimes that could be a baby hit sometimes you could take the tiniest hit but it's just enough to merge with your anxiety. But I've had some great revelations, you know, I've had some great revelations that way. And my relationship with weed now is, you know, I've been smoking it again lately, but I'll take long breaks, very long breaks. I'm not in the world that I was in when I was in my teens and 20, early 20s, where I was just, I needed it all the time. But I do find that it's a tool, you know, weed is a tool And you can use it to look at yourself in ways that you might otherwise not. But that can often mean something horrifying or something that seems more horrifying than it is. Because that happens a lot where you'll look back at something you said. And and I mean, the the weirdest things come up. This isn't even weed related, but just I still look back and like... uh, I was talking to my friend's mom when I was a kid and we were talking about like this, this other kid's stepmom and her name was Sherry. And I referred to the, to her as Anita. I said, Oh yeah. Like his, his stepmom Anita. And then like my friend's mom was like, that's not her name. (laughs) And why does it bother me that I got that wrong? Like, there's tons of mistakes I've made that don't bother me, but why do I remember that? Like, why, why did that seem like some sort of fatal mistake? That time that I got the name of another person's stepmom wrong in a, in a very like low stakes, casual conversation. Why did that one stick in my brain? Why did that mistake haunt me? And it doesn't actually haunt me, but like for whatever reason, it lodged itself in my brain. And so a lot of things like that can come out of you at unexpected times. Sometimes sometimes it's a smell. 
Like I hadn't been around uh, the smell of salt, the salt ocean air in a long time. And there was a time where I smelled it and it immediately took me back to a whole set of experiences. You know, the old factory, the old factory, they say is powerful. And you don't really give it enough credit, but they say like scent and smell can really take you back to places. And it's true. But those sort of experiences, they can bring something out of you, you know, in the same way a breakup can, in the same way getting too stoned can. It's like these, these sensations you can experience can open up like entire doorways. And some of them are doorways you don't want to go through. Because the thing is, is like people are afraid to see themselves under a harsh light, especially people who already hate themselves. But those are the people who need to do it the most. Like the people who need to look at themselves in a harsh light the most are the people who hate themselves. Because you're the one responsible for not hating yourself. So the only way to do it is actually address the issue. And if it's something you can't fix, if it's something you can't get around, well, then you might have to pursue other avenues. You might have to find other external resources to help you. But there was a time where like I had met this girl that I liked and she was into me, but like it just wasn't working out. It was very early on. And I hadn't smoked pot in a very long time. And I, I just was like, hmm, you know, I think I'm going to smoke some weed, but I was terrified. I was like, I know that I'm going to get stoned and I'm going to think about that girl and I'm going to think about how she views me. And I'm going to think about a couple things she said. But I got stoned. I ate an edible and like the edible crept in and I was walking through the woods and I thought about her and I just felt this massive burden released. I was just like, she's just like this young girl. And, I, and I'm, I'm probably not meant to be involved with her. And I kind of rejected her anyway. Like it was one of those things too, where it wasn't even like she rejected me or anything like that. It was like, it, it was very much on me. The whole situation was on me. But when I got stoned, it was actually, it was not torture. I actually just laughed. I was just like, oh, that's so funny that I was so, I've been so preoccupied and obsessed with this situation. It's been distracting me. And it's so, it's so unimportant. I got all twisted up. It's like, it's almost like being in an argument where you end up arguing about something that was completely unrelated to what you were originally talking about. And you trick yourself into thinking that the argument is actually about the thing that you're arguing about now. Like you've tricked yourself into thinking the argument is about something else other than what it was. And you need somebody to walk it back. And so sometimes those sorts of experiences can do that. Anything that causes you to suddenly take a, a new look at yourself, you go, oh, oh yeah, this helps me walk it back. This helps me remember the weird path that led me to this spot. But that was all just because I took that turn back there and there's no reason I can't go back there. Probably sounds like a crazy person. I don't know. Everything I'm saying probably sounds like a maniac. But that much is true. You know, I do know that I'm a maniac. I do know that I'm a madman. But anyway, it's a Sunday. There's kind of, I don't know. There's something in the air. There's something in the air as always. As always, but there's something in the air this weekend today. 
but it can be scary for people to see themselves under a harsh light if they're already critical of themselves. But when you do that, it's like, I, I mean, well, I mean, here's the thing. I think some people are concerned that if they see themselves under a harsh light, they're going to kill themselves. That's going to be the thing that causes them to just dive headfirst into the abyss and they're never going to find their way out. When the reality is, is that actually addressing the things you don't like about yourself and, and not being afraid to rely on platitudes and cliches and other people's experiences. Cause that's, that's the hard thing for me is like, I'm such a jewel hunter that I will completely reject everybody else's perspective and experience because I want to find my own jewel. And then I come back around and I'm like, Oh yeah, it turns out that thing that I was calling all of these different names and spending all of this effort trying to describe, Oh yeah, it turns out it was just God, just God. But there's relief even to that. Cause then you go, okay, I tried to find another way. I really did. I tried to avoid that. And I tried to find another way and I just ended up with God and it was there all along. Anyway, I'm just using that as one example or love. Like there's some people who are afraid to use the word love. I don't throw it out too freely, but I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of, of telling someone I love them. And I tried to find another word for love. I tried to find an alternative approach to love. And guess what? I ended up back at just good old love, love. But in order to actually change what you don't like about yourself, you really do have to look at it. And it's going to be an ugly process. I mean, balding's interesting because you can avoid looking at your hairline. But if you don't ever look at your hairline, if you don't ever look at your hair because you're afraid of balding, it doesn't change whether or not you're balding. At some point, you have to actually look at it. At some point, you have to actually look at what you, the state of your head, state of your hair. And uh, I don't know. I think about this a lot like with, with people like choosing superficial ways to change themselves. You know, some people get a tattoo, they get a haircut, some, they change themselves very dramatically. And that's kind of weird to me. Like, it's like some people are, you hear about these surgeries people do. Like there are people who will get plastic surgery for any number of reasons. And it's like, did you ever think about working out? Did you ever think about developing a discipline like I think about that with people who have changed themselves very dramatically, permanently. And it's like, you know, you've never even experienced going to the gym. I, I don't go to the gym, but I'm just talking about working out. Like you've never even experienced a life where you work out regularly. Oh, you don't feel like you're who you're supposed to be or you don't like this part of yourself. So you're going to pay a bunch of money to fix it. Yet people notice it. People know something's not right. It's like when people see a celebrity who's butchered their face through plastic surgery. And I'm not going to get into details here, but just anything where somebody modifies themselves heavily. And, it's, and sometimes you want to go like, you know, did you ever try 
did you ever try like more of a, a, a long term process? Like, did you ever try getting in better shape? Do you ever try getting healthier? I'm not saying that that would fix all your problems. It doesn't fix people's problems, not all of them. But it's like the fact that you haven't even tried that. The fact that you haven't even tried the tried and true methods that many people will attest worked for them. Like, I feel substantially better because I lift weights and I occasionally run, I walk. I feel substantially better for doing that. And you see people make these really drastic life decisions, and maybe they know what they're doing. I mean, a lot of them don't seem like they do. And it's it's not me to decide that for them, because deep down, they know. Deep down, they know if they made the right decision or not. But I think about that sometimes where I'm like, you haven't even explored what it was like. Like you haven't even explored the possibility of taking your current body as it is in different directions. Like you, you haven't even explored the possibility of like, hey, instead of getting a tattoo, I'm going to go to the gym for six months. And plenty of people do both. Plenty of people go to the gym and get tattoos. But I'm just, I'm trying to make a point here, okay? Which is that like, you haven't even tried just doing something with what you have. And you think that by superficially changing yourself, that's going to do the trick. And it's like, why don't you just try, like, try listening to other people for a little while. Try doing that thing that you haven't done before. Because that's what I realized that I had to do. I had to open myself up to ideas, to just lifestyle choices that I otherwise never would have considered. And it turns out they worked wonders. And, and they are processes too. They're not cures. They're processes. But people are afraid to do that or they're not able. They don't see themselves as disciplined. I mean, I, I look back at myself when I was a fat kid and it didn't even really seem possible to get in shape. Like you just accept that this is how you are. Like I never thought like a fat person. Like I was always, I was always very active. I never thought like a fat person, which I think made it easier to keep the weight off when I, when I lost weight because I never saw myself as a fat person. Therefore, it never felt right. Like, I never felt like that was actually me, even though that was the only me I knew. Fat me. But it didn't seem possible to develop a discipline. I didn't know what... It just didn't seem possible. I was so used to eating a certain way. I was so used to a certain level of activity. Even though I knew all of the basics, I knew how to lose weight. I knew how to get in shape. But it just didn't seem possible. But yet it is. It's very possible. And, and once you do it enough, it becomes a part of your life. It becomes ingrained. It, it becomes a constant. And you feel substantially better for it. And it's not that it cures all your problems, but it, it helps you. That's one part of your life you don't have to worry about. Or you have to worry about it less. Because obviously you worry about your bodies no matter what. And like people always use that argument. Like people who have taken on this sort of pseudo nihilistic stance are like, hey, this guy went to the gym every day and he was really, he was in great shape and he, he still died. <laughs> 
oh, this guy, he, he never smoked in his entire life, and he went to the gym, and he ran marathons, but he still died of lung cancer. Oh, my God. I guess I don't need to do anything. Like, it's funny how people see that. Like, they're looking for excuses. People are like, oh, yeah, you know, this guy was in really good shape, and he never smoked, and he still died of lung cancer. I guess that means I should just keep smoking. So as people develop that mentality. But, yeah, no, if you feel like you're in a bad place or you, you don't feel like you're you, because that seems to be the big issue today is like the more identities that people take on, the more superficial identities, the less they even feel like themselves and the less they communicate as themselves. Because whenever you see somebody who's really attached to their identity, especially as it relates to these modern identity politics, you don't actually feel like it's ever them talking to you. Like, I still see them as human beings. I still try to regard them as people. But they become so attached to these superficial identities, they don't even communicate as themselves anymore. And in some cases, I think they, I think they truly believe they've achieved some kind of synthesis where they are the whole of their parts. But all you have to do is interact with them to see that they're not. Because they're screaming at you. They're screaming, not necessarily even at you, they're screaming for you to see them how they want to be seen. Which tells me that you really haven't achieved that synthesis. You really haven't synthesized this collection of superficial identities and beliefs. You really haven't created a synthesis of it. And you've actually obscured the real you even more. And in your pursuit for something new, like now that these new things are available for you to do, now that there are these new ways for you to express yourself, You've forgotten that there are tried and true ways to do it. And you can see that with the opposition. Like you can see, like, just pay attention to what people are, are opposed to. And some of it comes from a place of hating something because they know that it's good for you, but it's hard to do. Therefore, they don't want to do it. And so they end up hating that thing and opposing that thing. And it all just comes from the fact that they don't want to do it and the fact that other people do it and tell you that it's good for you and it could potentially help you with other issues in your life. You know, it's easier just to pretend that it's a bad, it's just, it's bad, you know? Like it's easier for people to say that, oh, fitness culture is toxic than it is to be like, oh, hey, maybe if I worked out regularly, I would actually feel better. Sonic Youth are awful people. Hour and 43 minutes on a Sunday. I have to deal with myself at some point today. So I think I'm going to go. I'm going to go deal with myself. We'll see. We'll see how harsh it gets. I wouldn't be surprised if I do another episode tonight.
I don't really know what else to do with myself. Everywhere I look, there's agitation. Even in the places where I typically go to avoid agitation, it's there. But I also see that as an opportunity. That's what I'm talking about, agitation. When someone breaks up with you, it's agitation. When you get too stoned, it's agitation. And when you feel agitated, that's the best time to look inside. To look within yourself. And if you don't find anything to work with, you don't. You just go, okay, I'm agitated. Because that's what you learn too. I mean, that's, that's sort of one of the, the greatest lessons I've learned is that when you do look and say like, mm, am I agitated because of something going on with me? It's a psych 101 cliche, but there's a reason for that. But, and, and, uh, but when you say like, is, is this something going on with me? Is there some war going on inside of me that is causing me to, to sense or experience agitation with this external thing? And sometimes it is, sometimes there is, sometimes there is something very clear and you go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm bothered. I'm twisted up inside. But sometimes you realize, oh no, actually this thing just is really agitating. This thing that agitated me is just agitating. And that's confirmation too. Because you go, okay, yeah, you know, it's not me. In this case, it's not me because I've already covered that ground or I've tried. And I sometimes ask myself, like, is the way that I think unhealthy? There are definitely unhealthy aspects to it. That's a fact. There are unhealthy aspects to the way that I think about things. But I also believe there's a net positive. And in... I don't know, in examining all this, I do feel better off. But I have to know when to turn it off. I have to know when I've been doing it for too long, when I'm doing it too often... Isolating yourself brings this out. And if you don't have discipline and you isolate yourself, that's how you end up being Ted Kaczynski. That's how you end up being the evil wizard. That's how you end up being a witch. Did you hear they just exonerated the last witch from Salem? I was joking with my friend about that because they just exonerated the last witch who was killed in Salem. But what's really bizarre is her name is Junior. Her name is like Emily Johnston Jr. And I'm like, what? There was a witch named Emily Jr.? Of course she was a witch. Of course they thought she was a witch. Who names their daughter Jr.? Like, if I meet a girl today, like, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not a witch hunter. I'm not the witch finder general. But if I meet a girl today and she's like, oh, my name's Carissa Smith Jr. I'm going to go, witch, witch. You might as well just wear a fucking pointy hat, babe. You might as well just wear a pointy hat, baby. Your name's Clarissa Smith Jr.? That just screams witch, witch. Go get your pointy hat. Oh, I can. Oh, I see that you've had plastic surgery. What do you mean? What do you mean I've had plastic surgery? You're a witch. 
your nose, I know, I can practically see how long your nose used to be. Getting weird here. That's, that was my first thought. It was like, they exonerated the last witch from Salem and her name. I'm getting her name wrong, okay? I'm sorry. This poor woman got killed for being a witch. And I can't even remember her name. All I remember, though, is that it was Junior. It was like Emily Johnston Jr. Hey, Junior. Calling a, a woman. I, see, I guess I, I've seen that before. It's, it's not the only time that I've seen a woman named Junior. But I thought that was a strictly masculine designation it's funny like the politics of senior and junior too here we're going to be here for five hours the politics of like naming your kid senior or junior because i had a friend who had his dad's name like his dad's name was mike and my friend's name was mikey but he always made it a point to be like i'm not a junior because they had a different middle name sometimes you'll name your because if you're a junior you have the same first middle and last name that's what qualifies you as a junior. But if you have a different middle name, you're technically not a junior. Like an example of that is in the mafia, John Gotti, the famous boss, John Gotti, his name is actually John Gotti Jr. Because his father was John Gotti Sr. But then John Gotti Jr., who is the John Gotti we all know, but he had a son named John Gotti too. And not two as in the number two, but he named his son John Gotti as well. But his son is named John A. Gotti, but yet they call him Junior. So it's a mess. You have John Gotti Jr., who has a son named John Gotti, who's not a junior, but uses the nickname Junior. What a mess. What a mess. But people are serious about that stuff. Like my friend growing up who like did not want anybody to refer to him as Mike Jr. Because he wasn't. He technically wasn't. But yet we kind of allow it. We allow this like colloquial sense of this this colloquial use of Jr. Just to mean anybody who has their dad's name. When there's actually a very specific, uh, a very specific rule. As to whether somebody is actually a junior or not. Which makes me wonder like this, this witch. Blah, 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 Jr. Did she also have her mom's middle name? Did I hallucinate this? Did I just imagine? Did I did I like see a typo and like hallucinate all this? No, I'm pretty sure her name was Junior. But like naming your kid Junior is an interesting decision too. I mean, just I mean, there's obviously ego involved, but not necessarily. I mean, I, you can't assume why somebody names their son after them. I'm going to name him after me. It is an interesting decision, though. And I don't know too many juniors. But then it's an even more interesting decision to name your kid your name, but change the middle names. So they're not technically a junior. It's just It's the politics of junior. It's what we call the politics of junior. But everything has politics to it, you know? Naming your kid. Naming your kid is very political. You know, people evaluate each other based on their names. Like, there are people where it's like, if you have the same name that their ex-boyfriend had, they might not date you. Or they might prefer to date you. 
I mean, you'll meet some girls or people in general, and it's like everybody they've dated has the same name. I mean, there was a, speaking of the mafia, there was a famous boss, uh, Chin Giganti, the guy who used to wear his bathrobe out in public and pretended to be crazy. And his wife's name was Olympia. And so was his mistress, who he was also common law married to in a different state. Like he had two different wives in two different states who both had the same first name. And you can make the joke like, oh, it makes it easy. He's not going to call out the wrong name. But you do wonder about that. Like I, there was even a story. Uh, I had a professor in college who told us a story about somebody he knew who married a woman named Cookie. This was in the South. And he married a, a woman named Cookie. And then he, they, they divorced and he married another woman named Cookie. And I, I'm guessing this is a Southern nickname. I'm guessing in the South, there are more women named Cookie or who have the nickname Cookie. But it's like he, he got involved with two women who went by the name Cookie, which is a weird name. Cookie Jr. Oh, she's, yeah, they exonerated the last witch. Her name is Cookie Jr. <laughs> oh, did you hear the last, they, they exonerated the last witch. They exonerated the last witch from Salem 300 years ago and her name was Cookie Jr. It's like I got news for you, she was a witch. Her name's Cookie Jr. She's a witch. Thurston Moore, witch. He's a witch. That's kind of how I feel though. It's <laughs> just to tie this all together. Like when I started to see Thurston Moore in like every documentary about underground music, the gut feeling I had is, oh, he's a witch. This is black magic. And then when the guy, when the guitarist from Samhain, a band who's dedicated to black magic, whose entire aesthetic kind of revolves around black magic, the fact that he's like, oh yeah, Thurston Moore, or Sonic Youth, awful people, awful. Witches, they're witches, man. Got to see things in terms of witches. Everyone I don't like is a witch. Male, female, or otherwise, everyone I don't like is a witch. And even some of the people I do like are also witches. And when I see myself in that harsh light, when I look at myself under that harsh light that shows all of my scars, all of my pimples, that shows my thinning hair, that shows my thinning brain, that harsh light that, that shows every interaction I've ever had, with other people. The question that I ask myself is, am I a witch? So far, the answer is no. But you know, the nice thing is, is like, even if someday I realize that I was a witch all along, somebody's still going to exonerate me in 300 years. So it's all good. So even if you're a witch, you can still be exonerated. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when 
sun reveals her hills and plains. I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me.